0: start by asking, what do you want? What do you want? What, what do you desire? What is that thing? Try to think of something. Right? How do you go about getting that thing? How do you go about meeting that want and that need? Uh, I, I recently uh, rediscovered something that has always been funny to me. It's not new, but if you're familiar with this, there's this, the marshmallow test. Uh, and this is the, the test for delayed gratification in kids, right? You can, if you Google marshmallow test kids video, there's a lot of entertaining footage you can watch, okay? Um, if you're not familiar with this, uh, the idea is that you, you give a kid a, uh, a marshmallow, a big marshmallow, not the little ones, a big one, it's got to be tempting, right? Um, and you tell them, if you wait until I come back in the room, like five minutes, right? If you wait to eat this marshmallow until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. And watching these kids struggle is really cute and, and entertaining and adorable. And, and I mean, they're trying valiantly. Well, some of them. Uh, there's, there's a few that, you know, like it's in their mouth before they've gotten done finish, finishing the deal that they're trying to make with them, right? Um, uh, but like heads on the desk, some are like, what like if I lick it, you know? You know, like, what, what about just a little bit? Just can I have, what, what about that? Um, the most entertaining ones for me are the, the ones where there's two kids, like likely probably siblings, I assume, who are in the room, and um, one is definitely has uh, less willpower than the other, but the other, because they're watching the other one eat it, is like, I'm going to do better. <laughs> I, the, the, that competitive self-righteousness starts to come out too, and I'm just like, oh. And it's at that point you realize that this is also a mirror into your own heart. Am I right? Right? Because it exposes and you see in us what is just displayed on every kid's face as you're you're watching this play on the video. Is that what's going on in our own hearts is also a wrestling with, a fight and a war against and between different desires. Both for good things and for bad things. For selfless things and selfish things. Now I'll be honest, I, I, I've thought a lot about how I would preach this passage um, before about three or four years ago, even, even as much as six or seven years ago versus now, and and it's changed significantly because we've gone through a pretty major cultural shift, and it's not necessarily been like a light switch change, it's more of a dimmer switch of, of, and, a, and a tipping point that of something that's kind of always been in the water for American culture, but has is now a, a, a significant influence, and it's this, it's this idea that we, as individuals, we don't just have desires, we are our desires. See, if, if we have desires, then, then the question that we ask is, do we gratify that desire or not? If we are our desires, then how can you not gratify that desire? We must gratify that desire. Let me unpack this because I think this is something that's just like, oh, yeah, I can see that, but not in us, but mostly in other people, right? Um, Let me ask this question. Like, how do you view, how do you see your relationship with desire, with your desires in particular? How do you view your relationship with your desires, right? What I mean by that is, is should should I listen more to what is coming from within me or from the God who exists outside of me? If we weigh competing desires that are at war within us, how do we weigh them? How do we, de- how do we know which desires are the good ones versus the bad ones or uh, a good uh, amount in de- of desire or, or desires that are, are way disproportionate to the thing that it desires? How do we weigh them? How do we, how do we decide which to gratify or not? What's the process look like? Here's another, here's another way of asking to get this. Have you ever asked yourself, like, like, have you ever asked, what does God's Word say about something that you already have an opinion on? <laughs> uh, yeah, now you're thinking about the things like, okay, yeah. Do you look for, your, for where God's Word is going to affirm your opinion, or are you looking for God's Word to change your opinion if necessary? Does your love for something that is right and just and good excuse any self-righteousness you may feel or judgment of others or slander or condemnation that you actually act out that self-righteousness with when that desire is unmet or if you see it not being fulfilled somewhere else? Or do you respond with eager curiosity and charity? So, so to To the degree that these questions that I'm asking us this morning... Um, to the degree that they are weird to you, or novel, and or you haven't thought of them before, or maybe even uncomfortable, and you're like, "Okay, can you stop asking those questions? I don't want to answer or think about that anymore." To that degree is the degree to which you have conflated desire with identity. That you've conflated what you want with who you are. And so one of the things that is is kind of a, a infusing Paul's assumptions in writing this passage and that is at play underneath because it's not just like, what do we do with these desires that he's talking about? He's actually talking about something that is deeper happening underneath those desires, that's driving those desires. And he summarizes this as the difference between the flesh and the spirit or the flesh and the gospel. And the flesh would say that our identity, our dignity, value, and worth is the result of our desires either being met or not. So our identity is on the line when we are pursuing our desires the gospel though says that our our desires are the fruit of an identity bestowed that there isn't anything on the line when we are engaging with and wrestling with our desires so when i ask a question what do you want i ask that question because you probably had a hard time answering it and and as we have talked about the different ways that our desires conflict within us, you've probably recognized and realized that like, some of these are really good, and some of these are not great, and maybe just born of desperation. I want sleep. Where right? There's a war within us between these competing and contradictory desires, and that is the difference between the flesh and the spirit. So let's jump in. Let's talk about the flesh, because the works of the flesh, Paul says, come from what he says is inordinate desire. The word for desire in this passage is epithumia. And it means inordinate desire. What it means is, is, is something that is we desire that is disproportionate, like is greater than the thing that we desire's value. Okay, It's a way of saying, uh, and in using that word, what Paul is communicating is that desires are not bad. Desire isn't bad. You shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel you you, you feel bad when desires are unmet. But when inordinate desires are not met, that's a different thing. With the first, we can sadness and longing are all really valid. But when we have an inordinate desire that's not met, we start to act out of these works of the flesh that he describes. So our desires are not bad, they're just broken. They're broken. And that affects our motivations. Um, in this excellent book, that is probably one of two, sometimes three books that I've been using for preparing for this, uh, this sermon series. It's called uh, Galatians for You by Tim Keller. Uh, he says in here, a motivational system, because this is what an inordinate desire is, a motivational system is centered on a goal that the imagination finds beautiful and desirable. This goal generates what we perceive as needs and manufactures drives to attain them. The sinful nature is really our old motivational system with its own goals and thus its own needs and desires still somewhat intact. It is focusing on some object that is in itself good, but which it turns into an idol by which we seek our salvation. And as an example, he says, "You know, I can have my worth if I am loved, I, if I have a good career, if my children love me and which finally then creates over-desire for that idol. Paul, in using the language of the works of the flesh, is telling us that that inordinate desire is also remarkably effective. (laughs) It produces a lot of things. It produces a plethora of fractured and a diversity of things. And he describes them in verses 19 through 20. He says that these works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, et cetera. If you would keep that up on the screen for a minute, I want to I break these down because I want you to notice that these are not just actions. They're also attitudes. They're not just behaviors. They're also something deeper, closer to our beliefs. They're, they're in the heart, the first three are sexual in nature and have to do with sexual desire. There are two uh, that are around spiritual desires. And, and when he says idolatry and sorcery, he's, he's actually, in this context, in this case, talking about something very literal that is around the Galatian church. He's saying that, like, yeah, I know these things exist, right? An actual, specific cult that worships other gods and has they, those gods have names, right? He's not talking about, like, a, a, um, an implicit idolatry. It's an explicit one. But both of these things are, uh, one, one is a substitute for God. That's what idolatry is. Sorcery is just faking the work of the Spirit. It's trying to manufacture the work of the Spirit without the Spirit's involvement. The last two are actually about substance abuse. Because the, the or, when he uses the word orgy, he's talking about a, it means literally drunken gathering. Okay? And so it's talking about um, um, feasts and parties that are um, debaucherous. And so it's about substance abuse. All of that, those that I've been talking about, those are expected. If, if, if Paul is talking about works of the flesh, his audience, the Galatian church, would have been hearing from these Judaizers, um, these, these Jewish Christians who are trying to pressure them into getting circumcised so that they are not like the rest of the Gentiles around them, which is this description, um, but are instead actually saved now and part of God's people. And so in the middle of all these, he drops this bomb. There are seven words talking about the kind of hedonistic environment and the culture around the church. And then there there are eight words to describe something slightly different. Smack in the middle of that are words that describe how these works of the flesh destroy relationships. There are four that are attitudes. Strife, selfish ambition, um, this kind of envy and coveting. Uh, when it says jealousy, that's a different kind of envy. It's one that's inextricably linked to ego and comes out of ego. Uh, amnesty, even which is, which is another way of saying hatred, like hate, actual hate. Then there are four that are more the results of those attitudes or the, the embodiment of those attitudes in a community, and those are rivalries, or pugilism, just conflict, uh, fits of rage, which is about lacking restraint, uh, dissension and broken trust, uh, factions and divisions. Uh, you could summarize this as polarization. And so, in a very real sense, Paul could be describing American politics and/or Christian Twitter. <laughs> That's a laugh, so we don't cry. Laugh for sure. Okay. By inserting legalistic, self-righteous behavior smack in the middle of a list of licentious, hedonistic behavior, he's using the rhetorical equivalent of a defibrillator trying to shock the Galatians' hearts back to life. He's saying, wake up, you don't understand what you're doing. If you think that getting circumcised and following, like putting yourself under the law as your source of identity, you will be no different than the pagan world around you. You are actually giving up and leaving the covenant of grace that God has inaugurated in Christ. How many of you are familiar with the language of horseshoe theory? Have you heard this before? Okay, cool. The few people I know who are also on Twitter. Sorry, that's on me. Um, Horseshoe theory is this idea that culture is not a left and right linear spectrum. It actually is a a horseshoe shape that kind of curves back on each other so that as you go further to the wings and the extremes, they start looking a lot more alike. And and what Paul is saying, is like, no, 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 it's not even a horseshoe. It's a circle. Those are connected. They're actually one and the same. Both hedonistic and legalistic behavior are motivated. They are motivational systems that seek to gratify inordinate desires. One is this legalistic kind of law unto, or sorry, not legalistic, licentious, a law unto our, themselves, right? That's the, the hedonistic um, uh, end of the spectrum, or autonomy, that's what it means. Law, auto, auto means uh, self. Uh, nomos is, uh, is, is law, so a law to self. That's what autonomy means. But the other is through self-righteousness, and they're both different ways of seeing it in yourself. They're both means of self-salvation, and you can't do that. It's not possible. Now, he's contrasting these things. And as he's contrasting, he says in verse 17, like if you literally, if if what we just talked about about inordinate desires, if we incorporate this into our, our, our reading, then verse 17 reads that the flesh over-desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, but it leaves out, it doesn't repeat the word over-desire. What Paul's doing is he's implying that the Spirit has desires, has passions, has yearnings, but that they're different. They're different yearnings. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums this up so beautifully. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the end? What is the thing that motivates man? Or at least should. That's the chief part, right? That's the, what's, the, what's the highest aspiration? What, what is it that should motivi- motivate humanity and that, that, that motivates the Christian, especially. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a different end. It's a different motive than the works of the flesh. It's, you might summarize it as, as Christ-likeness, because that's what Jesus' uh, Jesus's own motive, his own desires were, was to glorify his Father and enjoy him forever. That's what brought him to the cross. So that's what's driving, that's the motivation that's driving what, what I'm going to refer to as inordinate character. This is implied, I'm not using the same, I'm not, it's not as, as explicit of a parallel as what inordinate desire is, but is, that is what the fruit of the Spirit is. Let me read, reread verses 22 through 23 to refresh our memory. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. I wish we had time to like break down each and every one of those facets. Um, And if I, knowing what I knew now, I would go back and and redo the sermon series so that we covered this in two sermons instead of one. But, But we still get so much out of just understanding what it is that Paul's talking about as a whole, right? When I say fruit of the Spirit, this is what I'm saying. It is it, this is how we want to define it. It is the supernatural evidence of Christ's love in us that provokes Christ's likeness from us. It is the evidence of Christ's love in us that, pr- that it provokes Christ's likeness from us. It's this deep-rooted existential se- assurance and security in our identity in Christ that gives us and cultivates gospel affections and desires, and then as an outflow of that gospel fruit. And that word fruit, by the way, he's not saying the fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, or the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit. That distinction is extremely important because he's building a metaphor to contrast how different spiritual transformation is when it's Spirit-powered, okay? I'm going to Talk about four different dimensions here. That this is all what, all happening and going on in his contrast here. The difference between works and fruit. First of all, the fruit of the spirit is singular and multifaceted. It's fruit singular, not fruits plural. That means that you can't separate anything on this list. It's actually one symmetric thing, one one unified inordinate virtue and character that grows as a result of the Spirit's work. It comes from the same root, the same heart-level transformation that is a desire to love God and love neighbor. The second thing that Paul is just imbued in the meaning here is the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated over time, not manufactured in the moment. It is cultivated over time, not manufactured in the moment. The fruit of the Spirit, the thing that these things have in common, is this is what can spill out of your heart when provoked and cultivated. Cultivated and then provoked, right? Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is that the works of the flesh, or is it the fruit of the Spirit? Okay. The third thing that is implied in here... Is it the spirit, These, this is the fruit of the spirit. That, that means it's not like spirit-like. It's not spiritual. It is fruit that comes from, it's, it's genitive, that it comes from out of the spirit. In other words, it is powerful and personal. The spirit is not just this amorphous kind of like principle of if you do it right um, and self-help and self-actualize enough, then like good things will happen. It's, this is an actual person who is acting on and in us. And it's powerful. I love love the way Tim Keller says this too. He says that if the Spirit is not in it, you can't do it. If the Spirit is in it, you can't stop it. I got goosebumps just thinking about how freeing that is. How much of your life do you just... Assume as a default, without even thinking about it, that all of this is on you. Whatever this is, you have the very Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, actively, intentionally, and proactively, lovingly working in you to cultivate Christ likeness. It's not on you, but it's with you. You're not just a passive participant in that too, because he's powerful, but it's also personal. That means it involves your cooperation. Just like any other relationship, God desires your interaction. He desires you to be involved. He desires you to exercise the agency and and steward whatever power he has given you. But in and through the Spirit, it is personal and involving at the same time. That's incredible. Lastly, the fruit of the Spirit, think about it this way, it's proof of new life, not a prerequisite for God's love. When I say proof of life, I'm like, you know know how in the movies are like somebody's kidnapped and they're like, how do I know this isn't a pre-recorded thing? And they hold up a newspaper with a date on it. Paul's like, fruit of the Spirit. It's proof of new life, right? And it's it's, it's, it's not, this is not like an objective thing. It's, it's a trajectory of life. It's a trajectory of growth and cultivation. Lord knows, if y'all knew me before I was a Christian, Hannah did. Whew. Spirit is working me, okay? Having seen that work is actually proof of the Spirit's work in you. It is not a prerequisite. It is not a condition for God to love you. When Paul is saying this and contrasting this, and he's saying some you know things like those who belong to Jesus Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its uh, with its passions and desires, and when he is saying elsewhere that they will, the those who do such things, by the way, as a pattern, not a failure, not a mistake, not as a sin, but as like I have given myself over to these things. I am, I am under these laws that, that cultivate these works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not trying to get his, his audience or any of us to doubt whether or not God is at work in our lives. He's trying to assure us that he is. He's trying to assure us by telling us that like just because everybody else is mad about something and if you're mad you're not if you're not mad you're not paying attention shove that crap okay Paul's saying that's nonsense that's not trusting God to do his work and to renew all things you do not need to participate in that in fact if you do you are no better than the things that you are saying are a problem you're actually contributing to the equal and opposite error And that's why you can be joyful in circumstances that are not enjoyable. You can be patient in circumstances that are forcing urgency. That is how you can be gentle with people who are not. It is how you can love those who hate you instead of hating them in return. That requires the Holy Spirit's help. You cannot muster that up on your own. If you doubt that, then you have reached a level of privilege that I cannot comprehend and I am, would love to hear more about it. His point is, this is how you know you're already saved and you do not need any circumcision of the flesh because you have something better. You have been circumcised in your heart. You are set apart. God is at work in you. Now, up to this point, everything we've talked about in this passage so far is very descriptive. He's kind of, uh, he's, he's kind of like outlining a map of things so that you know where different things are and where you are and how everything is situated in relationship to each other. And then he says to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. And that begs the question, how do we do that? How do we live by the Spirit? How do we keep in step with the Spirit, as he says in verse 25? Um, To answer that question, I, before I even read the passages that we're going to, um, a couple of you have asked me, like, how my week's been already, you know, this morning, and uh, it's been a really sad week for me. Um, man, um, I was quoted Tim Keller twice this morning, and um, if you didn't know, Tim Keller's a pastor, he planted Redeemer... New York, um, and he's an incredible pastor. He's written more books than I can count. I literally, I thought I had them. I don't have all of his books, okay? I know you've heard me quote him many times, Protestant Pope, etc. okay? Three years ago, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given a year to live, and he lived two more years than anyone thought he would. The gift. And he passed this week. Um, And I have several, somewhere between several and a dozen friends who um, know him and know how much he has poured into them personally. And just a lot of grief this week. Um, And if if you want to see something incredible, this will be the one and only time I ever encourage you to go on Twitter. Look for the, ha- like, search for the hashtag, thank you, Tim Keller. Um, he has written books, and he is, he is brilliant, and he is, he is known for his brilliance, but the difference between mere genius and something that is actually compelling is the fruit of the Spirit. It is a love, it is a, a love, a joy, a peace, a patience, a kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is categorically irrational and by the world's standards, foolish. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, it is okay, but you just should know that the table, if it did exist apart, humanly speaking, if the table did exist apart from Tim Keller's ministry, it would be, this would be a very different church. I mean that directly and indirectly. If you, if you know what church planting is, Tim Keller, um, again, humanly speaking, and not only exclusively, but primarily is the one who, who, who catalyzed church planting in the early 2000s. Um, Hannah and I got to be a part of the fall church, International Church Planting Intensive at Redeemer, which we got to spend a month in New York with Tim Keller and his staff learning how to church planting from the literal OG godfather of church planting is incredible. His books, like I literally I have conversations with other pastors who are like I'm really nervous about plagiarizing Tim Keller because I've been so shaped and formed by him. I don't know what is actually coming from me versus has come from him and I just forgot anymore. Has definitely happened here. Okay? I say all this because Tim Keller, not because of his brilliance but because of his inordinate character managed to get Twitter to stop arguing for 36 hours and express gratitude for him. That is a supernatural work of God, okay? I say this because he has many thoughts about and has demonstrated and lived what it means to live by the Spirit, and I'm going to be referencing several of them this morning. Okay, first let me refresh your memory of verses 24 and 25. Because this is what Paul says. This is where he moves from descriptive to, to prescriptive in the sense of calling us into something. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. I want you to note in this that he is saying that this happened. This isn't the imperative part. He's not saying crucify the desires. He's saying, no, that's done. Jesus did that on your behalf. And therefore, if we live by the Spirit, because we've been made alive by him, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Well, how do you do that? He's using language that would evoke familiarity with, and this is where anytime this topic comes up with Tim Keller, this is where he goes. It is in Psalm 1, which is, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Note, by the way, you're walking, and over time you, start, you stop walking and you stand more time goes by, and then you start to sit in it. In other words, you are more stuck and enslaved to works of the flesh. But his, so the blessed is the man who does not do this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, I know we're talking about the law. We're talking about being under the law. Read this as the word of God, as the law of the Lord. That's what the psalmist is getting at. And on his word or law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Modern translation could say a tweet that everybody forgets. Okay? The first thing, the first way that we walk by the Spirit, the first thing we do in walking by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit, is to saturate our hearts with living water. That's what verses 2 and 3 are articulating. And that's the identity piece that we started this with. The more that you imbibe what Jesus has done for you, the more you will do for others what Jesus has done for you. The more that you center on and revolve around your heart and your life, around word and prayer, the more that it will shape you and affect you, and the more it will do so over and above anything else. When Tim Keller was asked, and this is, this is after his diagnosis for, for cancer, so he's literally thinking, like, I, I have day, months, days, however long left. He's asked, is there any, what, if there was anything that you could have done differently as a pastor, or in your life in general, like, this guy, like, he's brilliant, Okay, And he's had a lot of chance to think about this. His answer was, I wish I would have prayed more. His book, um, Praying the Psalms, is, a, is, is probably one of his least appreciated one, but it's, 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 it's so simple. It's literally breaking the Psalms into two a day, and it's a few verses and then a prayer. And that's all it is. And he, he literally copy-pasted his own prayers in that. And in so doing, it produced in him something that in a world and in a time when, when celebrity leaders are dropping like flies, people from every end of that horseshoe spectrum or the circle and everywhere in between are grieving his loss. What he understood and what Psalm 1 is articulating and what Paul is implying here is that you need to we need a root system thick enough to keep the dandelions from rooting in the first place. Don't worry about picking and uprooting the dandelions. That's actually the second Im- important thing. It's not the first important thing. The, the important thing is planting yourself by streams of living water because it doesn't matter how many roots you pluck out they're just going to come, keep coming back. Cultivate those roots because that gospel identity is going to reshape your desires. The second thing is, yet, yeah, weed it out too. <laughs> to reject the way of scoffers. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't indulge in gratify the flesh such that you are doing the... And, and you know if it's gratifying the, the inordinate desires of the flesh if it's coming out like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy. Okay? Reject that. Don't participate in it. Don't indulge it in yourself. When you notice it, kill it. Kill it with grace. Not con- conviction, not condemnation. And let me just be, like, I'll be, let me be really blunt right th- with this. One of the other symptoms or dimensions of this, like, we don't just have desires, we are our desires, is that we think that we have permission to hate and demonize people if we are right and we are wronged. If we have been wronged and we're right, then we, it doesn't, then if we're right, it's okay. We can, we can do that. We can slander. We can indulge in our self-righteousness. We can judge and look down on others. And, and, and at its core, what this is saying is, is that having a, a Jesus-ish experience of being persecuted or oppressed or whatever else, however you frame it or, or express it, having a Christ-like experience bestows Christ-like authority and righteousness but without Christ-like character or love. One of the most amazing things I, I've, I've, I, 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 that you learn about Tim Keller, if you know him, if you've, been, if you've seen him do ministry over the decades, is when somebody, and this, this is, you know, if you go to that hashtag, thank you, Tim Keller, this is something that you'll see a lot of, are people who have like, attacked him publicly, written things about him, Telling stories of how, when that article, when he, when that article was published, Tim Keller finding their phone number, calling them, and saying, "Is there? Do I need to repent of something? Do you see something that I don't? Please tell me." And because I just want to understand where you're coming from. And it's not a trap, right? He's not doing that to like to kind of condition that person to letting their guard down so he can let them have it. He actually meant it, y'all. The only way that that is possible is if you gaze at the cross and you hear Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do when they are the people who are crucifying him. And you start to realize that he says it about you too. When he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The they isn't the people that disagree with you. The they is you. that changes you. If it doesn't, you haven't looked at it long enough or deeply enough. You see, we don't need scoffing. That's a clanging symbol at best, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's easy. You don't need Jesus for that, actually, at all. The world is full of the, you know, this gospel of being wronged makes me right. It's full of uh, exhibiting this kind of, not this otherworldly freedom to love and, and this fruit of the Spirit that I'm trying to describe, but this, uh, this worldly enslavement to outrage and works of the flesh. See, part of this switch that happened is that, right, if, if character is destiny, we have started to um, look to people for wisdom and guidance who, um, who are modeling publicly not inordinate character but inordinate desire. And an ability to meet and satisfy that inordinate desire, and we're like, okay, we want to. That's that's who we should we should be formed and shaped by. That's who we should follow because then our desires are going to be. We'll feel like the you know we have dignity, value, and worth too. Our world is broken. Christ ends with our means will never cultivate, for the spirit. It will only guarantee blind hypocrisy that is either at least on par with, if not outpacing how whatever it is we think others are wrong about or whatever it is we've been wronged for. The last thing is this, and then I'll jump into the Q&A. And this is really where the, the one and two intersect, is to entrust yourself to God's spiritual greenhouse. Entrust yourself to God's spirit, spiritual greenhouse. We literally just did that this morning when we welcomed Beth and Andrea as members. They've entrusted themselves to God's spiritual greenhouse. Paul is saying that if you want to cultivate fruit of the Spirit, then don't, you can't, well, this is, this is not, Paul's not saying this here, he's saying this elsewhere. I'm pulling this in. Don't treat the church, the spiritual greenhouse, like a Hobby Lobby, okay? What I mean by that is if you've been in Hobby Lobby, you know there's a lot of fake fruit in Hobby Lobby. It's made of plastic, right? You never go to Hobby Lobby when you're like, I want to do something really intentional and long-term. <laughs> you laugh because you are right. You know I'm right, right? It's been, oh, crud, I really need this one thing to round out this other thing that I'm doing and it'd be really great, I'll just go to Hobby Lobby and I'll get it and it's awesome and all. Oh, wow, there are some really weird slogans and kitschy things here. Um, that fruit doesn't satisfy. It doesn't even taste, it doesn't taste good at all. I mean, I, I haven't tried pushing, breaking the metaphor here, okay? It doesn't satisfy. And if you treat the church like that, it's not going to feel like a greenhouse. And I, and I get it because being in a greenhouse is hard. If you are the plant, if you are the thing the greenhouse is built for and, and not the, the, the thing that the, uh, you are not the desire that the greenhouse is intended to satisfy, right? Then you're going to get pruned. The good news is Jesus says that it's the, it's the branches on the vine that are bearing fruit that get pruned. Great reward and incentive, right? Cool. Pruning hurts. But we need, we, need, we need way more than a pep talk. We need pruning. And that happens in a place where the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated, not just individually, but communally. Entrust yourself to the only institution that God gave the world and, and for that very purpose. This is why... Tim Keller, I am convinced, this shaped and formed his own maturity and character more than anything else. And this is what kept him from becoming another celebrity leader or preacher or pastor, is he understood this part. He invested in church planting, planting more local spiritual greenhouses, just like this one, literally invested in this one. Okay? He knew that and understood that because him himself as a leader was so committed to that that when they planted Redeemer and everybody was wanting, flocking to this church because they wanted to hear him preach, he he split it intentionally. And so there's four different campuses that ended up becoming their own churches like 10 years ago now, 15 years ago, they made this decision before he even retired. And he would just rotate among the churches and not tell anybody where he was gonna be on a Sunday because he didn't want them there for him. They wanted, he wanted people there for Jesus. We have this incredible gift. The church is God's second greatest gift to his people. The first is himself. The second greatest gift is a spiritual incubator and kingdom outpost that bridges all humanity between the garden and Eden and the garden, city, and the new heavens New earth. God is good. Okay, let's see what questions we've got. I've run a little long, so I'm going to... Okay, we got one. While we don't want to contribute to the problem like racism... Is it Christian faith to be angered by injustice or to live peaceably ourselves and not worry about larger social issues? Okay, there's two ways to answer this question. Both are valid. Let me give you the one that I think is the obvious one, which is, of course, we should be worried about social justice, social issues. We should be worried about things that are bigger than ourselves and outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And I would encourage you to interrogate the ever-loving mess out of where that question comes from. Not because of anything you have done wrong, but because we are living in a world that is manipulating our good desires for those things to extract and mine our attention for things that don't matter. And there, is, there are issues staring us in the face that we do not see because we are consumed with things we cannot do anything about. Again, I want to affirm that, yeah, absolutely, that is a fruit of the Spirit. You can't, generosity, goodness, patience, kindness, faithfulness, all, absolutely, good desires, absolutely. Things like social media, I know I've talked about Twitter a lot this morning, like social media in general is shaping our culture in ways that are, like that's the thing that has changed upstream of our be, not just having desires, but being our desires. And I would encourage you, like, we got to interrogate that. And so, yes, and also worry about the stuff in front of you. And if you want help, if you're like, I don't know what the stuff in front of me is, come find me. I have, I have many things for you to invest your time and energy in. So many things. Okay. On that note, let's, let me transition to communion. Okay. Um, the, the, the most greenhouse-like thing that we do if there is a, if we are nourishing ourselves with the living water, then that necessarily an, involves two things. It means word and sacrament. I talked about prayer and word earlier, especially individually, but corporately, word and sacrament, it all revolves around this. We are called the table, not necessarily, not because this is like, like hospitality is a great strategy any more than kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Like those aren't strategies, Those are virtues. Those aren't things that we embrace and pursue because, you know, they work. Those are things that happen to us when we embrace God's love for us. And it's beautiful that Jesus... On the night that he was betrayed, the thing that he wanted to leave with his disciples and the image that he gave to them was to say that this bread is broken and and is my body and is broken for you as I am going to actually and epically and ultimately be. And likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, is given for the remission of sins. It is sealing you from condemnation and to belovedness. That is not something that you do. It is not something you can do. It is something that I have done. It is finished, he said. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you are being nourished. And you are proclaiming that there is a different way than the inhospitable climate of this world. That there is an age that is breaking in. And in that, while we are waiting for it to come in its fulfillment, that there is a greenhouse, there's an incubator, there's an outpost of grace and mercy and truth and love that you do not have to suffer without. Come in and welcome. If you're hungry, if you desire that, this table is for you. And I'm going to pray in a minute, but as soon as eight or 10, come on down anytime as, as Elle is leading us in and worship, and as soon as eight or ten of us are circled around, we will share the bread and wine together, and we will center our family around what Jesus has done on our behalf, and we will rest in his grace and trust in him to produce the fruit that we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you, oh Lord, we need you. We sing these words, and we don't even know how true they are. We also don't appreciate or realize how much you satisfy those needs and and what you have done on our behalf. Lord, help fix our eyes on your cross to keep in step with the Spirit and to walk according to the Father's will. Help us to glorify you and enjoy you forever because that is the desire, the only desire that fully humanizes, restores, and loves like you have loved us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Tim Keller, thank you for his ministry, thank you for his fruit of the spirit that you have cultivated in him, and for his contributions to this church, which are innumerable and invaluable. Lord, continue to build your church. In your son's name we pray, amen. Come and eat.